This is the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1604, Permaculture from the Inside Out. My guest is Rachel Kaplan, a member of 13 Moon Collaborative and co-author of an excellent book on practicing permaculture in cities and suburbs, Urban Homesteading. Our conversation today centers around her work with the collaborative and how to foster permaculture people, not just permaculture landscapes. This conversation is about more than just our design practice, but looking at permaculture as an embodiment of all the pieces that it's become, a way to live in an ecologically sound way. A returning guest, the first interview that I ever had on the show, you can learn more about Rachel, her biography, and book by listening to the earlier interviews. Links to those and other resources are in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Before we begin, if you find that this interview or any in the archives inform or transform your thoughts and thinking, there are several ways to help the show. The first is through Patreon, where you can become a member and receive a variety of benefits, including first access to episodes and discounts to partnering vendors. Some of those include Field and Forest Products, Chelsea Green Publishing, and Permi Kids. The second is to get involved with the Permaculture Podcast community. Join in the conversation at facebook.com slash the Permaculture Podcast, or on Twitter where the show is at Permaculture CST. I also recently joined Instagram as Permaculture Podcast. Plus, you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and share a link to your favorite episode on social media. All of these ways help the show to grow, and together we can truly help to change and transform the world into a more beautiful and bountiful place. Now then, on to Rachel. I'll join you again afterwards. So if you might want to give us a bit of a, an update on where things have been, and we can kind of take the conversation from there. Sure. I did spend the last year and a half, well, two years, I guess, working with a collaborative of other women teachers, working on a project we call Permaculture from the Inside Out. What's coming to me at this point is like, we're really trying to help foster, like, not just permaculture landscapes, but permaculture people. So it's like a total remodel. It's not just like how we deal with the land and our neighborhoods, but also how we deal with what's going on inside of us and how we respond to things and how we work with other people so that we're we're not neglecting the designer in the conversation about what we're trying to design in terms of regenerative culture. So that's the big project that I'm working on that feels exciting and I feel like it has potential to be integrative in a way and um, to reach people who don't necessarily want to grow up and become permaculture, like professional permaculture designers, but who want to understand and embody the principles and the ethics and learn to live more with the story of the earth instead of with the story of human destruction. So we're, we're going to do another round starting in March and are really trying to broaden our base of who we make the course available to, who you know, who's incited by the idea of actually really embodying permaculture, understanding what that means to really embody it as a practical, spiritual, philosophical, cultural form. So we have many dreams. <laughs> well, I like that idea, though, because a lot of the conversations that I've been a part of lately, and also one of the big projects that I'm working on right now, deal a lot with 
the transitional period that we find ourselves in as permaculture practitioners. And not only for those of us who might want to practice professionally, but I get probably an email or a phone call every couple of days from someone who wants to practice permaculture in their lives, but they don't want to become a designer or a teacher. They're just trying to figure out how to apply this in their own lives and really kind of live it. And it sounds like you're really able to kind of take that and work with people to help bring out that idea in a way that isn't necessarily a livelihood, like some folks have been working on, but as a, a personal practice to live closer to the earth and these ethics and principles. In your first course of this, what was the response like? How did people leave the class as opposed to like a normal PDC where everybody wants to go off and teach and design? That's a good question. Definitely by the end, the group was so loving and excited and inspired and started doing that thing that you want a group to do. They started self-organizing. When are we going to meet and how are we going to keep helping each other and how are we going to keep supporting each other? And it was really happening without the teachers spearheading it. So it really felt like people were ignited to continue to understand what permaculture could mean in their lives and how they could spread it out in their, in their home places and in their communities. Definitely people felt like their lives had been transformed, which isn't totally different from lots of permaculture courses, right? Like that happens to many people when they take a PDC because the information is mind-blowing and so different from how we've been taught to think. But there was a quality of, of intimacy and friendship that happened. And I think partly that was because we studied together for 13 months. It's really a very long time. And there's something different about the seasonal, like doing a whole round of the seasons and doing a PDC in two weeks where you have this major download, this intensive, and then you go off and you try to figure out how to work with all of that. So, yeah, I think time will tell to see if really if there's like a, a, a quality of taking the permaculture values, principles, and ethics into other kinds of work. But I don't think anybody in that group actually that their intent was to become a professional permaculture designer and try to make a living that way. So it seemed like we were hitting a, just a different group of people than the more classic PDC. And also we live in a region here in Northern California where there are some really spectacular permaculture designers like Eric Olson, who's now running a, a really a big immersion program for people specifically who want to make it their business. And he's teaching them business practices and having business coaches come in. So there's really, there's a lot of venues for that in this part of California. So we can really make a very different kind of offering because that piece is, is being provided for so well up here. It allows a space to diversify and find a different niche for this course and curriculum to fill. Well, and a lot of parents do it. You know, people who can't take a full two weeks off. That was how I originally did it. I studied with Penny Livingston over the course of a year because I had a little girl. And I was like, I can't really actually take two full weeks off from my family. And so lucky me, I got to do it over the course of a year. That really impacted me because it was like, yeah, there's something about seeing a farm in the spring and the summer and the winter and the fall that you just learn differently and there's so much more time to absorb. And I think that that's part of the way the, the form mirrored the content. Like we're, we're partly about like small and slow solutions and letting things sink and spread, right? Rather than just sort of like, we're going to dump like 50 buckets of water on you and call it permaculture and then you guys go figure out how to sort it out. It's more like, let's have a gentle rain that seeps into the soil and over time you can see what grows, you know? My own PDC experience was April through October in 2010, so we kind of spread it across a number of weekends that way so that we had a 
I think it was 14 or 15 class days spread out across that, including our final design day. Yes, I think it's helpful to such a big, such a big body of work to learn, you know, to get started with. So it's, it's helpful to have the time. And, and we found, like I'm sure many PVC teachers find, it's like there's just not enough time. It's so superficial in some way, the way the PDC is set up. It's, it's such a survey course, and there's so many places where you want to be able to really spread out and have more time. And really what you're doing is you're gesturing towards so many important studies like botany or water or mycelium, like all of these things that you want to learn about and know about, but to really master any of them is, can be a life work. So that's a thing we puzzle with is like, you know, we're a little maverick. We're like, what's the most important parts of the paradigm that we really want to give to people? So they really can design their lives and their landscapes and their families and support their communities to get more resilient. And, and what are the parts that we can sort of gesture to and say, you actually know where to get information about this and you go do it. Like, and sometimes it's like energy. Like there's so much stuff about how do we trip our energy infrastructure that's technical and fairly available. So do we spend a whole day on that? Or do we actually look at energy from a different lens? Like, how do you manage your human energy? And how do you manage to work with least effort to greatest effect energetically? So sometimes we go metaphorical instead of technical. It's sort of a different technique to learn. Does that make sense? No, that does. And it raises a lot of the questions that I've had within how do we model a permaculture design course for the 21st century? Because a lot of the information that we have is 30 or 40 years old. Right. And at least, you know, when I was just finishing up my most recent trip through college, when we were studying ecology, it was that, you know, some of the information it, that we're going to be touching on is five or 10 years old. And the next time you pick up this material or a textbook on this, it could be completely different. Yeah. And yet... The designer's manual is something that's still held on to very strongly. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how, through time and looking at creating a different course in this way, especially over the long term and connecting people with these different ideas that might not necessarily be design-focused, how did that change your approach to the core curriculum? Well, it was interesting. I found myself having a lot of fidelity to the core curriculum. I felt that because we were offering a PDC and that really needed to make sure we covered the wide variety of themes that show up in every PDC. But we did, we did leave some things out because we had no expertise and it wasn't really relevant to people who live in Northern California to learn about how to manage resources in, say, your region where there's snow. We spoke about seasons, but we didn't do in-depth things about different regions because we just, we couldn't, you know? So we had a lot of questions about, about the PDC itself. And I think the biggest thing that comes up for me about the evolution of permaculture is that, of course, we have to keep working to bring everything to scale, right? And things are so ecologically troublesome and keep going in that way that it, the questions that seem to be the most sticky are how do we... How do we inspire and motivate large numbers of people to get on board to live in a way that's more in alignment with um, resources and with each other that creates more social justice that actually brings all different voices to the table? And so that seems like the human element in a way needs um, the most attention in terms of design. So that's my bias, I think, as somebody who works directly with people in a therapeutic way and in a group way. But 
you know, I don't know if you've seen Starhawk's new book, The Empowerment Manual. You know, it's really all about, like, how can groups work together to create democratic and open process so that decisions can be made in a good way and people can move forward in organizing themselves to create social change. And I don't know, I always laugh and I say it's actually easier to grow a carrot than it is to get along with your neighbor. And like we have to learn to work together so that we can bring this to scale. So I think the PDC needs a revamp around those pieces. Like, And so that's where like the group dynamics and how much attention we actually give to our students, the whole people care part of the ethics, um, I think has been underfed because we've worked so hard on the, the earth care part and some on the fair share. There's still a lot of questions about fair share as well. If we look at the permaculture movement, it's largely white people, you know? So like, there's questions there that need to be addressed, I think, if we're going to get out from being marginalized. Sometimes I feel like the 14th chapter of the designer's manual that deals with social and economic systems kind of gets set by the wayside and forgotten when we're using the landscape as the metaphor as the place to have this conversation. Not only with Starhawk's work, but also, you know, Toby Hemingway's The Permaculture City and some of these other pieces are really beginning to examine the social and economic structures that we inhabit. Well, if you've got like Charles Eisenstein also, who just really condemns the money system totally and for good reason. And it's like, how, how do we create a world where the money system is not controlling everything? And it's like, well, we'd have to take out corporate capitalism, <laughs> which is, of course, our big challenge, right? But there's, there's really something about how we are so controlled by economic reality. And it makes some things possible and other things really impossible for us that we have to face, I think. It's still very easy to extract resources and use those resources to turn them into this value exchange of money. But when you want to give something back, there's no real way to value that. I've been torturing myself this week by rereading The People's History of the United States. Have you ever read it by Howard Zinn? I have not, but I'm familiar with it, yeah. Oh, Lord. You know, it's, <laughs> it's rough. You know, it's like we start with the Indians, we move to the African Americans, we, we exploit labor. It, it just goes on. We, we, we steal Mexico from the Mexicans. It's just on and on. And, but what struck me this time, I haven't read it for many years, is that really the fight has always been um, the many against the few. And the few control the resources, and the many want bread and dignity and education and a good home for their families. And I think because that issue is so up in our culture now, it's just so glaring to me. I'm like, wow, it's it's the same fight that we're fighting. And there's always, I think, a question of like, how do we use what we're fortunate to know in permaculture as an inspiration and as a way of, as a solutionary focus to say, here's a way that we can start creating a world where there is more for everybody and where these skills are. They're easily learned and practiced and they provide abundance and joy and delight and beauty and they give us many of the things that if we were designing the new world, we want, you know? And if you think about like the Paris um, climate talks, it's like, okay, we've reframed climate change as a moral issue on a global scale. That's good. And we all know that the voluntary limits that they've placed are not sufficient. So how do we continue to motivate from our home places to do more, to do better, to create the change that needs to happen? And um, in the face of this like serious resistance by the powers that be, the money class and I just feel like I think about that all the time. <laughs> so I'm trying in my own way to to help 
spread what I've learned that has brought so much value to me and so much joy and so much hope, really, and possibility to help inspire other people to bring it to wherever they work, you know, whether it's with kids or with whatever, whatever they're doing, you know, just to, to bring those those values forward more and more. And those two elements that you spoke of between the history and the systemic issues as well as the individual changes that we can bring about are two pieces that I've been juggling since I had a conversation with Jason Gadeski a while back. When was that? That was in September that he and I sat down for an interview. And it was before or after we were on air brought up the difference between the individual responsibility and ability that we have versus the system that kind of has us in the place that we're at. And how do we change both of those at the same time while still living a life that is free and dignified and with those that we love and care about to continue to elevate their lives? And I know for myself and others, there are certain times when you look at it and you go, you know, it would just be so much easier if I just quit or I turned my back on this and became part of the system again. Yeah, well, I, I've definitely lightened up on myself. That's one thing I've noticed. Like, I I still grow a lot of food, and it's raining in California now, finally, and I have this completely autistic rainwater catchment system where I literally go out and move hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water by bucket. It, it's so crazy because I'm a renter, and I can't hook up my rainwater system the way I want. And so I do things that most normal people would never, never do. And it, it still gives me, like, spiritual and personal nourishment to be out in the rain and getting wet and putting my hands in the water. So that's really why I do it. But I've noticed that I let myself buy more things and not give myself grief if I haven't managed to grow every bit of vegetables my family needs. You know, it's like lighten up. The struggle is so much bigger than my individual choices. They're important. But if I give myself a hard time when I don't meet that goal, I'm not doing better. You know what I mean? And that's the inside out piece, actually. It's like, well, sometimes we need to give ourselves a break, you know? And sometimes we need to, we always need to be assessing, like, what's the, what's the benefit and what's the input and output? And it's hard to grow spinach in Northern California because of the lack of water. So I'm going to buy spinach, you know? And I really like it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I think that we have to, like, compassion for ourselves also that we are hooked into a system that we don't want to be part of and we do the best we can that's how I see it these days and that's kind of part of this conversation of what is self-care in this system now what do we do that allows us to live more intentionally and to embody these ideas more while understanding that we're still stuck within a system that we're transitioning from the world that is to the world that we want to and where are the best places to make those choices? We had, uh, I don't know if you know Pandora Thomas, she teaches here and around, and um, she said, you know, we're building the bicycle while we're riding it. So it's a trick, it's a tricky maneuver that we're trying to pull off because we're trying to get somewhere and we don't, we don't exactly know where we're going and we don't have the transport and we're, we're building it. And I think there is really a, there has to be a place where we give ourselves a break yeah, I don't think riding ourselves all the time or giving ourselves, I don't, I don't know, I'm not using the right words here. I, I, yeah, I think that, I think, I, I don't, I'm confused actually on this one. I think about it all the time also because there's some part where there's, I know for me, I still live with a lot of privilege, you know, and even though 
I don't own a house or make that much money. I, I really think I live like so beautifully and so much better than so many other people. So I think when I feel like I'm giving back or um, supporting the empowerment of other people and, and trying to inspire people as well as myself, that I'm, I'm doing really the best I can do. And spending a lot of time feeling like I, I'm feeling grieved about what I, I have no control over doesn't help me become more proactive or powerful. How do you work it? I just kind of do what I do and keep pushing, 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 and don't really sometimes when things are kind of rough pay attention to some of the other stuff and just continue to do the best that I can. Yeah. And then it's, I've always been one of those people that's not quite a workaholic, but almost sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I'll focus or push forward on some project or some piece for months and months and months. And then finally, I'll just kind of let out this deep, soulful exhale and just stop for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, that's where I reflect. And then I see the space and distance that's been traveled, where the changes have occurred and gotten better. I've had a big shift also. Like I, for many years, was so filled with grief and rage about what was happening, what was being done in, in our names, and that I couldn't extricate myself from the system. Really, you know, a bit, but not so much. And Joanna Macy's work definitely helped me a lot with sort of allowing the grief and allowing the feelings and not suppressing them. And I think a lot of us feel that or it's sort of lurking maybe behind our consciousness and um, pushing us to to do what we do. But I have found that it's actually really helpful to, to feel it and to let it come through us and know that the grief you feel about what's happening to the earth and our, our you know, our sacred common home is, that's a sign of how much you care and how much you love life and how much you're willing to fight. And so there's just so many signals in our culture to numb out and check out and go on Instagram and do that thing, you know, just like look at the, the whole, you know, array of things that are presented for us to consume. And I think there's like a big work in, in feeling how intense it is the time that we live in and how much, how much is like pushing to be born while other things really are dying. And then there's like a whole spiritual perspective of like, I'm so small, <laughs> you know, one individual, and there's only so much I can impact and to surrender. I just like, at the end of the day, I can feel like, okay, I did, I didn't yell at that person. <laughs> I wanted to yell at, and I took care of this and this, and that was a good day, you know? And there's other forces that are just so much bigger than us that we're having to contend with right now. So I think it's, I think it's really a very intense time to be alive and to be concerned. When you referred to Instagram, it made me think about all the things that we can take in, all the distractions, and that now it's not so much just about the materials that we consume, but also the information, and how so much of it matters so little to where our lives are going, but it allows us to... I always think of it as, a, as an intellectual and emotional anesthesia to grab a, a smartphone and you know you just pull up an article and it gives you five or ten minutes that you can read something that some of the articles and research that I followed is that 
having so much information pushed at us through those notifications and the little buzz in your pocket or that you know two or three note tone that tells you that you have new email it all gives you a little hit of dopamine every time you hear it every time you react to it when you see that new like that new share and it's become our new addiction and i just wonder sometimes how that impacts our ability to do what we want to do without thinking about the amount of time that we consume of our own lives by giving over to those kinds of things yeah, I, I actually think it's actually um, partly why things keep going in a downward way the way they do because people are distracted and people are compelled to look at all these new and exciting thoughts and things that other people are making and so they don't look up and go, wow, they cut down another 200 trees in my neighborhood. Like they, People aren't seeing it and it, it serves the forces of denial and it pushes on the button of like, people's desire to consume and be part of and imagine that they're actually part of something that's happening where, yeah, I, I have really a lot of issues with it. I, I use social media and I use the internet and I'm grateful for some of the connectivity and the speed of communication and I've surrendered to it because it's so much what's happening. But I live with somebody who I think is totally addicted to the internet and he doesn't look up and go, wow, you're right. Like, shit's hitting the fan. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't see it that way. And I, I find it it's freakish to me. I'm like, hello. <laughs> but I, I think it's another one of those things. It's like, it's happening. It's around us. It's not going away. So how do we leverage it? And how do we use it? And how do we turn that problem into a solution? And I think you can see that in social movements around the world. It's certainly, it's been useful. Like it, there has been some solutionary um, uses of the connectivity that you get from the web. But um, overall, for Americans, I think it's a colossal time and energy suck. It's huge. And I look at the ability to insulate ourselves from information with social media by choosing who we follow or what we connect to, what pages we like, because then we're fed only the information that we want to receive. Yeah, I read an interesting book about that called The Information Diet, which was just about that and about how in our very polarized country, people on the right listen to certain people and read certain people and people on the left do the same and our information base and our theoretical understandings of things come from the the media that we select, which further separates us and keeps us from being able to communicate across our supposed differences. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an effective separator, I think, polarizer. It's hard to get. My daughter has just come into her cell phone life. She's 14, and that's probably why I mentioned Instagram because she's really into it. So I'm sort of tracking what she's doing. And just today she was giving me some statistics from a feminist Instagram post that she had gotten. So she's already picking and choosing where she's getting her information from. And I said, where does that information come from? She said, I don't, I don't really know, but I trust this this dispenser of information, but she has no idea actually who it is and or the facts she was reciting true or we, we just don't know, you know, so I can see how it's working on her too. Like, I'm glad she's reading a feminist blog instead of listening to Rush Limbaugh, but you know what I mean? It's, just, it's really all the same kind of mind control. When I think about how even our own lives have been reduced to sound bites and these little clips of media whether it's something like an, an image with some facts on it that's spread around as a meme or a 15-second piece of video or a short interview, it kind of dilutes the amount of information that we have. And because of all these bits and pieces that we're picking up and either consuming or being fed to us, 
that it doesn't provide a space to respond to it critically. Or the number of times that I've seen someone post something that says, you know, I haven't checked the facts on this, but it sounds true. And then you go and you check the facts and they're nothing like what was presented. Right, exactly. That's partly why we value learning to listen to ourselves and to our instincts and to our sensations and to our responses to the world, that we actually privilege that information that we have inside of ourselves. Like we have this incredible receptor that we live in, the body, which is like, what makes it possible for us to live here. And we've been taught to ignore it or to stuff it. And the more we open up to it, the more we can, we feel what's going on both in our lives and in the bigger world around us. And we can respond with more, I think, authenticity and directness to what's in front of us instead of all this stuff that's going through our super big brains, which get super captivated by all these different images and thoughts and feelings that come from other places. So it's like a a way to balance. You know, the culture really leans heavily towards information and thought as opposed to sensation and intuition and um, interaction with the world. So that's, that's partly how we think people get to be living back in the story of nature and with what's happening actually right in front of us. And seems so important. Kind of as a reconnection to self as a place to start? I don't like to say where people should start. I think it's an important element. I think different people start in different places, but I think that having access to our inner lives and our sensations and our feelings and our our stories helps us understand what we have the most appetite for, the most energy for, the most care about, and that helps us direct our action more effectively. So if each of us gets to hold a piece of the great turning and the transition that we're in, it's important that we each find, like, what are we most gifted at? Like, you've got this great podcast. That's one thing you do, right? Like, you're bringing information out into the world. You somehow honed in on that as something that was worth your time and energy, and hopefully it's giving you something as much as it's giving other people. And so you're holding this piece. Like, everybody everybody should do that, I think. Find what it is that they're most motivated to do. But we don't really figure that out by being told or by some formula. It's really more personal and internal than that, I think, for most people. So... I think it's a good place to start, but I think you can also go at it the other way. You can start by you can start by learning about how to work with water and soil, and that can inspire you to actually go, wow, it feels really good when my hands are in the dirt. Something's happening here. What is this? You know, And, and that brings you in to yourself in a different way. The, the element that I hear with that is that it leads to a sense of self-awareness of some form or another. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> And I think always with self-awareness, there's other awareness. Like we get it like, oh, I'm not the only person who feels this way, or I'm not the only person who cares about this, or I'm not the only person who's affected by this, or I'm not the only person who's going to be, you know, positively or negatively impacted by this action. So I think that's the other missing piece is like, how do we be with each other? How do we really do that? We're so bad at it. (laughs) So many glitches in human communication, you know? And so many like historical ways that people have been set apart from each other and against each other. And uh, like that's the other thing you get in that history book of like, it's only by uniting, it's only by people in large groups uniting that change really ever happens. And so we have to cross the sort of manufactured and embodied lines of race and class and gender and all sorts of social injustices. We have to like come together across those. There's a long history, right? There's a long history and a lot of hurt that needs to be tended to in order for people to do that. So that's another piece of the social permaculture pie. Like, 
really looking at those things and acknowledging that and working with that. And that requires a lot of hard conversations to be had in an open way where someone can admit to their ignorance and be able to work through and past it. Yeah, for sure. And it's not one conversation. It's like, it's a, it's a commitment, right? Like to become a, like a anti-racist ally for a white person. Like that's a commitment that you make to people of color. And you say, I'm going to work on my ignorance and I'm going to work on, you know, my unwitting privilege, you know, and, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna face this, and it's hard. It's hard. So that's like in that 14th chapter of the designer's manual. Like, I feel like we we are we have moved ahead in terms of learn. Like, their permaculture has really spread around the world. There's projects everywhere, and people really are understanding this more and more. But there still are a lot of imbalances and injustices, not just in our communities, but in the, in the world around us that we really could, I think, have positive impact on through our cultivation of awareness of what, of all of those issues. seems super consequential, especially when working in cities or large, you know, large human settlements. There's just a lot of diverse interests that are competing and meeting, tending. We've gone to places that I wasn't expecting to travel today, and I'm left needing a moment or two to kind of collect myself to see where to go next. Okay. You said that last time we talked, Scott. <laughs> I remember that you're like, huh, wow. <laughs> well, I spend so much time usually pushing in a particular direction with a series of interviews or topics that I'm covering on the show. And then a conversation like this one will come along that's not part of that. And so my thoughts aren't prepared in this direction or... Even more so with the conversation that we've had today, many of the things that we've touched on are pieces that have been really kind of personal explorations for myself mm-hmm. when it comes to language and how we communicate and these pieces that divide us. They've been these threads that have been a large part of my my thoughts and discussion with friends who do like health and human services work, but not within the context of permaculture. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of what my collaborative is offering is we're saying this is part of permaculture too. We designers are part of the field and we all bring different limits and opportunities just like every landscape to the situation and we can learn to cultivate and tend to different parts of ourselves or really grow different parts of ourselves so that we really bring more of ourselves to this this great transition that we're in and that it seems to us that I think largely because permaculture has been pushed forth by a certain class of person that it is good to open up the field so that more voices are heard and more perspectives are brought in. Like this really, this zone zero zero place is, it's really like put on the map. And um, yeah, it's important to us. You know, it's no, it's no accident that we're all women and we're all moms. And we all work at other things other than as permaculture designers as well as being permaculturists. And so there's sort of a, a, a diversity in what we do and a similarity in what we hold in terms of, you know, as moms of holding the future in a certain way through our children. That's really important, <laughs> really important. And um, I think we can we create an environment that allows for a certain kind of um, our humanity to come forward. That we encourage that in our students. The space that you hold as individuals and as a collective creates a particular space then for your students to inhabit while they're learning with you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
you know, partly because last year was the first, it was our maiden voyage, and it really was a beta. It was really like we were really building the bicycle while we were riding it. You know, we made mistakes, and we were challenged in different places. And many of the people who joined us, I would say a third, were people we knew from other places, and some were quite close friends. So they were people who weren't afraid to say, excuse me, but what are you doing? Or, this, look, you know, we got challenged. And so we really had to keep asking for feedback and taking it in. And, you know, that principle of like accepting feedback was really part of how we worked. And so where we started and where we ended were very different, you know, and we had some ideas and thoughts about what we could pull off in the beginning that as time went on, we were like, yeah, we're going to have to pare down that ambition or, oh, here's an opportunity that we didn't expect. You know, we really had to adapt. And I think there was something about us actually as a design team designing the course kind of in front of our people and going, whoopsie, (laughs) or yeah, that worked, you know, like that we really were a model of that kind of adaptability and acceptance of feedback. So I don't know what that's worth, but it was, there's something I think when you show people who are learning from you that you're learning also, I think that that cultivates a kind of environment that is very open, you know, it's like we definitely knew more than they did, but we also knew that we didn't know everything, you know, it's like, it was very, we were, there was a humility to what we were doing. I think after a certain point, we were like, okay, we're just, we're going to keep showing up, (laughs) you know, keep showing up. One of my professors always said that he preferred to be a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that that, that very human kind of perspective keeps it from being one where you're kind of like lecturing or just downloading information and it creates a dialogue that you, not only are the instructors learning in, but also the students during the process. Guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. I like that. That's helpful. Yeah, that's good. What breaks down also that that sense that someone is a guru or someone in an exalted position that can kind of be listened to without criticism. Right. So that things don't become dogmatic and that there can be a conversation to actually advance and develop these ideas. Well, and we actually, we created a 13th principle. You know how there's 12 according to Mollison and we call it center in the mystery. And so part of our feeling is that we can look out at our world and see what's happening in some ways, but in order to keep going, we have to acknowledge that there's a, a mystery in the universe over which we have no control, which who knows like how or if we're going to pull ourselves out of where we are. But if we actually um, let ourselves surrender to the mystery that we're part of, like the mystery of how we got here and how we're going to get out of this situation, something gets cultivated in us as designers that is um, worth contemplating and worth cultivating. So there's sort of like a practical and a spiritual side to centering in the mystery. And the body is a mystery and human relationships are a mystery. Like There's mystery everywhere. So we kind of laugh. We're like, well, we called it in. <laughs> we said center in the mystery and then we had to practice like really hard to do that, you know? So there's something in that that we're exploring or trying to understand. With all the places that we've journeyed today that were often unexpected, where you just took us, I think, is a great place to draw our conversation today to a close. So thank you for joining me today, Rachel. I really appreciate it. And if there's any time you'd care to join me again, please just let me know. Thanks so much, Scott. I always enjoy our conversations. And that was Rachel Kaplan. If you'd like to join the next session of the Permaculture from the Inside Out Design course, 
Classes start March 19, 2016, and you can find more information at 13, that's the number 13, mooncollaborative.com. Again, 13mooncollaborative.com, or by following the link in the resource section of the show notes. Stepping away from this interview, I find my perspective on the idea of Zone 00 changing. For a long time, I rejected the idea of the personal work, or the inner landscape, because it skirted the line of spirituality and sometimes seemed a bit too much woo for my taste. Because the presentations of the idea of Zone 00, as I first encountered them, were couched in language more mystical than mundane. But as I see the conversation in the community talking more and more about permaculture as an embodiment, as a lifestyle, and as a movement, combined with studying the American civil rights movement and other nonviolent movements, I find that transformation on a broad order begins with the self before it physically manifests in the world. Time and time again, there are examples, such as the Salt March led by Gandhi, that can take years of personal growth and preparation before what is relatively a short-term action. Yet, those stories about the personal are too often left out of the history books, so we only see the end results, not the beginning, not all of the individual choices and decisions that were made to lead up to those eventual actions. For us to create a more bountiful world, we do need to address that inner landscape, to know our heart's desire, to understand our calling, and to heal so that we can heal the world. By taking care of ourselves, we can practice permaculture from the inside out. Wherever you are on your journey, whatever you're doing, whether you're a new student, a teacher, or a small business owner, my door remains open if there is some way I can assist you in whatever it is that you're doing. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you like, you can also drop something in the post, as I really like receiving physical mail and the act of letter writing. That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is a permabite featuring Byron Joel, sharing a piece he wrote entitled A Lesson in Identity. After that is Jerome Osentowski, author of The Forest Garden Greenhouse. And before drawing everything to a close, a quick update from behind the scenes. On February 22nd, I'll be in Baltimore for an open house and roundtable recording with Charm City Farms. You're more than welcome to join us, though you should RSVP soon. You'll find more information by following the link in the show notes for this Johnston Square open house, where I'll be celebrating with Eric and Victoria this new urban farm project that they have, and then recording a conversation with Victoria and audience members about her Forger's Apprentice program. Not only the lessons that were learned from the first time the course was taught, but also about what can be expected in the class coming up. On June 18th, 2016 is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence at the Riverside Project in Charlestown, West Virginia. Michael Judd, author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, will be the keynote speaker. Workshops include fermentation and food preservation with Diane Bluest of Chicory Hill Farm. Animals in Permaculture with Nicole Luttrell of Wild Song Farm. Tree Identification Walks with Sean Walker of Trees 101, and a discussion of Living in the Gift with Seppi Garrett. I'll also be hosting an in-person roundtable discussion at the close of the day with all of the participants 
as well as the presenters. Tickets are currently on sale and early bird pricing ends on Sunday, February 14th, 2016, so pick up your ticket today. Also, along with the Convergence, we're looking for presenters for future events in the Mid-Atlantic region. If you'd like to be added to the presenter list, contact me with your information and further details about what subjects or topics you tend to cover. As this episode comes out, everyone at Seppi's Place is falling into what life is like when the people you share space with are not roommates, but members of your community. In our case, this means a more egalitarian approach to living. We're sharing food, drink, and other items in the community space and common area, whether it's with people who reside in the home or those who come to visit. As a number of you have also reached out to me to share your own stories of divorce, I'd like to let you know that the dissolution of my marriage in this move has been going rather smoothly, all things considered. I'm happy to say that my children have come and spent time here and are ready to return at a moment's notice. Their mother, my unwife, has had dinner here and shared the space at Seppi's place with our children and my roommates, and I continue to spend time at the house that we once shared with her and our children and remain an integral part of our family. If you're interested and want to know more about this process of unmarrying as opposed to divorce, though legally the results are the same, the social and emotional changes are much different, let me know and I can put together an episode to talk about the process of how my former spouse and I ended our marriage. And as I often say, my door is open. And it's not just for those who are looking for advice on permaculture or more information about where to find some of these resources. Life is bigger than just one thing, and if there's any way that I can help, let me know. And until the next time we meet again, feel free to call me, email me, send me a letter. But however you spend your time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. A listener-supported program.